Good evening, my friends. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome tonight. Welcome back to Five at Five. It is a joy to see each of you. Isn't it glorious and wonderful to have this beautiful sunlight coming through? Although I'd rather have a little rain. How about you? We shall pray for rain in just a moment. Let us pray for God's favor upon our time of study, and we will emerge and engage together. And now, gracious Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that provides us and the clarity that it brings to us. Thank you for the hope that we find in it. And we thank you tonight, Lord Jesus, that in you we can say confidently we've already won. We pray for rain, Lord Jesus. Would you send it our way? We thank you in advance for it. We pray for these men who are working on our street in front of our building. Give us chances to serve them and bring the gospel to them. Since you've brought them to us, Lord, that's the least we can do. We pray for our team in Lawn, Texas tonight. We pray for our group in New York. We pray for our team in Montana. Will you bless all of them, Lord Jesus, with power and strength? Would you endue them with your Holy Spirit resurrection power? And would you help them, Father, to see what they're doing in your eyes? Send us, Lord, to our mission field. It's right outside these doors. So use us, Lord Jesus, just like you're using them. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, Revelation 11, same passage that we read from this morning. It is a wonderful blessing that we have this seventh trumpet. It is a little bit consistent with Revelation, <clears throat> excuse me, that we have these interludes, if you will. Look back at chapter 7 and 8, and you'll find one there. Look at chapter 11, you'll find one there. Look ahead to chapter 16 and 17, you'll find one there. It's as if the Lord says, okay, that's enough, hold on. Let's give you a chance to catch your breath and to be reminded of the fact that I really am in charge, that this really is headed somewhere and that the authority of God is trustworthy, reliable. We can lean upon it and we can rest because of it. Let me read it for you, the same passage that our friend Art read for us this morning. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he'll reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give, thank, give you thanks, Lord God the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, and the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. You know, we got a little taste of that hailstorm a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my friend Mo and I went off to Kermit, Texas. We went by way of no trees. Maybe you've heard of those lovely outposts. Uh, Everything was great on our way to Kermit. When we got there, however, it started raining. I was at first so enchanted by the sight of rain 
that I forgot myself, even what I was supposed to be doing in Kermit. I might have stood out in the rain and danced, but that's another story for another day. It was when we started back for home that things got a little interesting. The rain slowly but surely turned into hail, and it went from pebbles to marbles to a little bit larger than that. We got to the cutoff where 302 cuts off to 158, and the hail became so heavy that we decided we needed to pull over rather than continue to try to drive on. Mo and I were seated in the driver and passenger seats respectively and could not hear one another at a normal volume of speaking. We had to shout. And I thought about this passage right here. A hailstorm. One that unsettles the balance of everything. And that brings me to the first question that I have for you tonight. If you have already scanned it, and I think it's still up behind me, if you've already zapped it with your cell phone, then you already have it. But if not, it'll come up on the screens. And just a reminder, you can request this and we'll print it for you. We just don't make copies for general use. Here's the question that I want to ask for you since we did the seventh trumpet today. Are the seven trumpet judgments the result of human action or divine judgment? The ancillary question perhaps makes it more clear. What's the relationship between human agency and divine sovereignty? Are these judgments the direct action of God? Or are they results of human action, war, nuclear bombs, global warming, etc.? The way you answer this question speaks of how you interpret these seven trumpet judgments. Now, it's different. The trumpet judgments are different than the seal judgments. We did those a few weeks ago. The seal judgments, it's clear human agency is involved in the judgment because they represent the rise of the Antichrist, a person, war involving people, famine, and deadly plagues. All of these implicate human agency operating under divine control. Uh, the trumpet judgments, however, as well as the bowl judgments that are still yet to come, we'll find those in the next few chapters, they represent a shift, a different form of judgment, it seems. This different form of judgment causes us to say, maybe, just maybe, my device is acting up, give me just a moment, maybe the answer is yes. It's both. This question of, there we go, now it's cooperating with me. The trumpet and bowl judgments more closely resemble the plagues of Egypt in Exodus. You remember those? I bet some of you were taught like I was, where you were required either by a Bible teacher or perhaps a Sunday school teacher, or maybe, maybe, worst of all, your parents to memorize the plagues and their order. These plagues have one thing in common, universally so. They're sent by God, and they're apart from any human agency. There's no way a human, no matter how enchanted or even possessed he might be, can generate the kind of plagues with the efficacy that these represented and carry it off to that proper end. Thus, we must say the plagues were the hand of God and nothing less than that. Likewise, for the trumpet and bowl judgments, we might suggest these judgments are 
and are nothing less than God's action. God's taking a larger and more proper place in executing judgment because he wants people to understand this is his action at work. Secondly, it appears the people on earth during these judgments of the trumpets and bowls understand these elements are coming from God himself. They don't blame others. They don't blame inanimate forces. They pin the blame on God himself. We see it in Revelation eleven thirteen, and three times in Revelation 16. Thus, at the end, the judgments are a result of God bringing all things under his control and under his sovereignty. So are the seven trumpet judgments the results of human actions or divine judgment? It's divine judgment. You might ask, does it really matter one way or the other? Yes, friends, it does, and here's why. If we conceive of us having a role in God's judgment and that it is up to us to carry it out, then we'll see ourselves as the harbingers, the carrier-outers of God's judgment. We'll see our responsibility as a necessary component to God's judgment being executed. Have you ever wanted to be God's righteous right hand? Have you ever wanted to strike a blow on God's behalf? I bet there are many of us who would, especially in Midland traffic. And yet that is not our place, is it? Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, not Darren. Does it matter whether it's human agency or divine? Yes, it does. Because if it's God's judgment, then he's the one, the righteous one, who will make all things right and bring all things back into order. This is good news. For it removes me and any role I might have in it out of the equation and gives all of that authority and that opportunity to him. This next question is one that I, I, I want to tread lightly on. Is Revelation inherently chronological? To answer this question before we get into what I've written here, let us step back for a minute to something that we said months ago. When we sit down to make an official and formal study of Revelation, one of the things that we must grapple with is how Revelation is to be structured. How is it to be understood? In a systematic form, how do we systemize Revelation? Well, herein lies the problem, because apocalyptic literature and structures are oil and water. They do not go together. They do not coexist well. Thus, we must stand back and say, okay, if we can't put a strict structure within this, then what can we know about it? That's why if you look at the notes that I've written for myself, I've not shared them with everybody because I don't want you to have the, uh, the full taste of my dementia. I've structured it around the four visions, the four visions that our friend John has. Those visions provide the best context for understanding how to compartmentalize the revelation. That brings us back to the question that I'm asking, is Revelation inherently chronological? 
One of the most difficult elements of Revelation is developing a, a timeline. Do the chapters, do the events in this book flow in the order and chronology the chapters seem to present? That should be a question mark, not a, not a period. It should be a question mark. The answer is a definite maybe. Because we cannot determine a straight structure for the book and its apocalyptic nature, we must admit chronology is not Revelation's chief concern. In other words, with all due respect to our friend, the Reverend John Hagee, down in San Antonio, uh, you may not know this, one wall of his auditorium, he's constructed a timeline, an end times timeline. And on that timeline, he has specific passages, specific verses, and one necessarily in linear fashion leads to the next. I applaud his scholarship, and I applaud wholeheartedly the energy that was poured out into that project. However, one of the things that we must come to terms with is the fact that Revelation doesn't present itself as a chronological affair. Thus, we would do ourselves no favors to demand that of it. It's not like the Gospel of John, another one of John's books, where it would make no sense if the crucifixion was in chapter 1, and let's just say it had a narrative of his birth at chapter 21. That would make no sense at all. Quite the opposite in this context, though, because in John's Gospel, it does need to be chronological. In Revelation, it doesn't. Thus, when somebody comes to me and they say, this must necessarily follow that because Revelation has it in that order, I agree with them Revelation has it in that order, but I'm not going to tell God how he must do it. And that brings me to the last thing I've written for this. The problem is ours, not God's. When we demand of God's word an accounting he doesn't offer, we're insisting he surrender some of his rightful sovereignty to us. In other words, I want God to fit in my box. All of us have boxes we want God to fit in. We might not even recognize that we're doing it. But those boxes are our ex expectations of what God will do and how he shall act and how he should be understood. And we say, God, these are the limits of my understanding of who you are and what that means and what you mean. So fit yourself into this box, limit yourself to my restrictions, and things will go much better. I want to ask you a question. Let's just say I took this handy-dandy water bottle here, and I filled it with ocean water from the Pacific Ocean. Would I, thereby, contain the Pacific Ocean in this bottle? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, I would. The water in this bottle would be Pacific Ocean water. I could thereby take it, bring it back home here, and I could hold it up to you and say, here is the Pacific Ocean. And everybody would be impressed, right? Not terribly. You wasted good time on that, Darren, and took it through security too. Um, but it would be completely foolish, nonsensical even, to say herein is the entirety of the Pacific Ocean. This is the difference that I'm trying to draw for you. Revelation 
gives us a window, a window to see into God's end time. It is not intended, nor does it present itself as a definitive chronological timeline. And so if I'm demanding something from it that it does not offer, the problem is mine, not God's. I call your attention to this because we are entering, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, some of the most commented on portions that we'll find in the pages of Revelation. Herein is the woman Israel, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, the lamb and the, 24th, uh, the 144,000, the mark of the beast, the vision of the angel with the gospel, and the doom for worshipers of Baal. Herein lies a great deal of interpretation. Does one necessarily follow another? Well, it seems so, but just be mindful that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and so it will tell us only as much as the symbols and the directives can convey. Let us move on and move back, actually, to something that we covered a few weeks ago, but we didn't have a five at five to touch on it then. The third question for tonight is, what does it mean for John to eat the book of Revelation in Revelation 10, verses 9 and 10? Let's pause and say John's not the first one told to eat a book. Ezekiel chapter 2 Verse 9 has our friend Ezekiel. He's commanded to eat a book as well. John doesn't tell us exactly what the book eating means. He merely demonstrates obedience by doing it. So why doesn't John tell us? Quite frankly, I'm not sure John knew either. He just heard the Lord say, do it, and he did it. Some have resisted that explanation because they want a more scholarly one. They want more detail. Surely John knew something, and perhaps he did since he read the book before he ate it. But he's not permitted to tell us about it, so all we know is that John was obedient. Friends, let's pause and say, may we do likewise i got to tell you this story. I just feel like the Spirit is calling me to this. It was about five years ago, we were looking for a youth pastor. We were looking for a youth pastor, and we had a, a, a resume, an application from a gentleman serving not terribly far from here. He was further up in the panhandle. We set a meeting with him, Larry Grimes and I did, at El Chico's in Lubbock. Anybody besides me like El Chico's? You might say, who picked it? I did. Uh, a, figured if I was going to have to pay for it, the least I could do is go somewhere I'd like to eat. So we sat down with this gentleman, and we're having a very fine conversation. And I won't say this happen, happens often, but I will say it does happen. Just as our plates arrived, I felt like the Spirit of God whispered into my heart. Darren, this is not your, you, your new youth minister. Not only that, I want you to tell this man who is currently a youth minister at his church that he doesn't need to be in youth ministry anymore. 
I, I tell you, I remember exactly, I can see my plate in front of me, and I was holding the fork in my hand, and I just put it down and leaned back. And I prayed, I'm not sure it was even to myself, I might have even said it out loud, no, what am I supposed to do with that? Lord, this man is serving in that role. Am I to speak on your behalf into his existence? And the Lord said, yes. Okay. I put it off, friends. Can I just be honest enough to confess that to you? I put it off until the end of the meal. We had ordered a little dessert, and it came, and I looked across the table at him, and I said, my dear brother, I don't think you're the youth minister for First Baptist Midland. And more to the point, I don't think you're supposed to be in youth ministry anymore. I feel like that's what the Spirit of God sent me here to tell you. Now, he put his utensil down and leaned back against his chair, and he said, I've been waiting for someone to tell me that. Well, now, doggone it, Lord. <laughs> you had already spoken to this guy. Why did you have to involve me? So this is what obedience means. Not understanding, but willingness to take the calling God has given you. As it happens, just to finish that story, that gentleman went home to his church and sat down with his pastor and said, here's what's happened, and they moved him to another role. He's still there. Obedience. It doesn't mean understanding. It means willingness. So this book that John ate, it had a double edge to it, you might say. The book was sweet when he put it in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. I've had some meals like that, and I bet you have too. Perhaps, although John doesn't tell us so, this indicates the sweetness of Christ's return because that's what Revelation's message is, but the bitterness of the judgments to come, because that's also what Revelation is. If we take that, then likewise, the gospel message that we proclaim has two elements to it. The sweetness of eternal life with Christ, the bitterness of those who will reject Christ. We don't know what it means for John to eat the book. And we don't know what was on the book, but we know that John was obedient, and that's enough. Let's move on to the fourth question. Is the seventh trumpet we read about just a moment ago the same as the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about the resurrection and how it will play out. And one of the things that he makes clear is the triumphant resurrection trumpet that will call for the dead in Christ to be raised back to life. We also see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, a passage that you've heard at funerals for all of your life like I have. Let us compare these passages against each other and see if they line up. The subject of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is the church. The subject of the trumpet in Revelation 11 is the lost world. The result of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is catching the church up 
to be with the Lord for all eternity. And what's wrong with that? The result of the trumpet in Revelation 11, judgment. The character of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a trumpet of grace. This is the overflow, the full fruition for which Christ came. The character of the trumpet in Revelation 11, a trumpet of judgment. At the end, we must say no. These are not the same trumpets. There must be yet a, <clears throat> one more. Well, you might say, but Darren, there are no more trumpets listed in Revelation. I have confidence that God can take care of that too. In the interest of time, let's move on to the fifth one. What are the seven peals of thunder that appear in Revelation chapter 10, verses 3 and 4? The seven peals of thunder spoke. And the Greek word that is used there is the kind of word that we would expect for somebody uttering words coming from their mouth. It was an a, 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 a utterance coming out of his mouth. God is permitted to hear them. I'm sorry, that should say John, not God. Yeah, God's definitely permitted to hear them. Uh, John, please make that correction, and we'll fix that on the notes going forward. John is permitted to hear them, but not to write them down. Because of the prohibition, there's no means by which to be certain what they mean. But here are a couple of options. Many have suggested there's a connection here between Revelation 10 and the seven times that God spoke in Psalm 29. Perhaps another suggestion goes, as George, uh, George Ladd, uh, a wonderful author, if ever you're interested in reading more about Revelation, George Eldon Ladd is a guy that I can highly recommend. The seven thunders are a premonition of coming judgment of divine wrath. A third option, perhaps it's another in the series of sevens that we find in Revelation. And finally, perhaps it's another seven judgment God chooses not to reveal. There we end with a statement that it is apocalyptic literature we're dealing with. And apocalyptic literature has a language all its own. Well, my friends, I, I want us to make sure we have plenty of time for our church conference, and we have several issues to cover there, but I want to make sure you have the chance to ask whatever questions may be of interest to you. Uh, my friend Gary has a microphone for us. Our friend Katie is out on vacation this week. Anybody have something they'd like to follow up on? Yeah. Hi, John. I want to go back to last week when you yeah. made the comment when we, when we were talking about John measuring the temple. Yeah. And at the time you were saying that the temple in this passage may be possibly figurative yeah. rather than a literal temple. Sure. And I guess I just wanted to see how that can be reconciled with other passages of scripture that specifically talk about 
temple sacrifices taking place in the last days, such as in Daniel 9.27 and Daniel 12.11, and that Jesus himself refers to this, and he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and then those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. And similarly, Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 3, he says that let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, that son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So you not remember that, so let's see, do you not remember that? Well, I was with you, I was telling you. So I want to see how that can be, how the temple can be figurative when Daniel, Jesus, and Paul, both, uh, you know, all three of them specifically talk about activities happening, uh, future sacrifices, and disruptions that happening in that temple at that time. So let me start by saying I'd have been disappointed if you hadn't asked this question, John. Uh, when I was working on that last week, I thought, John will have something to say about this. Thanks for not disappointing me. Uh, you're, you're quite right. There is a great deal of, of conjecture involved uh, as to whether it's a literal temple or a figurative one. The two epics that you are mentioning, our friend uh, Daniel and uh, Jesus himself, there is one event that stands between the two that we have to reconcile that does not appear in Scripture it is Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, the Maccabean revolt, and the period that stands between those. Does that qualify as the abomination of desolation? Here's the second part of that. What about the fall of Rome? Uh, I'm sorry, fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Does that qualify as the abomination of desolation? And does that qualify then? Well, I would say that uh, looking at the Matthew passage where Jesus is referring to this at, on his Olivet Discourse, he is saying specific, he is talking about a future event. Yeah. So that rules out the, the possibility of Antiochus Epiphanes yep. instant because it's happened before. And Jesus is giving a specific warning when you see this happening in the temple, it's time to get out of there. It's time to flee to the hills. Uh, and then when we're looking at the, you know, and we, we don't really, although we have the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we don't have the, we, we don't have the abomination of desolation, that mm -hmm. specific event happening, uh, either recorded secularly or in, in the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, as far as something as, hap as no, happening. No, the, the fall of Jerusalem is now recorded in scripture, a great disappointment to me, I'll say that. Uh, I wish they had, that would have made chronology for the Bible a lot easier. Uh, we, we can continue this conversation later, John, but the, the short answer is, uh, Yes, it is quite possible that the temple we've discussed in Revelation 11 is a physical one, a literal standing building temple. The reason that I shy away from that is the belief that somehow I can incite Jesus's return simply by reconstructing a building. That is not necessarily uh, a, a, a constructive idea, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, I've known of a great many groups who have made great fanfare and raised considerable money to take cornerstones to Jerusalem and plant them on Temple Mount with the idea that this will turn the trick to getting Jesus back. I'm, I'm, I'm reticent 
to make it a physical temple on that count alone. Uh, so your, your point is well taken. It could indeed, and maybe even will, be a physical temple. Uh, but what we do know is that whether it's a physical one or a literal one, uh, or, or a, a figurative one, uh, our friend Jesus will still be Lord over it. And that we can be grateful for. All right, someone else? Yeah, here's Bill over here. Gary's coming around behind you, Bill. Pastor, what, what would be inherent, inherently uh, problematic with if it was chronological, if these things were chronological? There, there wouldn't necessarily be a problem. Uh, but what, one of the things that we, we simply would love to know is what do these judgments look like? Have we already had some? And if we have, can, can we put a calendar on it and begin a countdown? Uh, because we as Western, Western civilization thinkers, we like linear timelines. Uh, we, we build them all the time. Uh, and for those of us that are engineers, we found our lives on them, really, because everything has to work in sequence. Revelation doesn't, doesn't necessarily bend itself that way. So really, I'm not trying to say Revelation isn't chronological, rather trying to leave enough room where if it doesn't flow to our tastes, God is still God. All right, we got time for one more. Anybody else? Hey, I appreciate you, my friends. We will not meet next Sunday night. We will gather instead on Sunday night, July 10th. We will take a couple of weeks break while Julie and I go on vacation. And then I want you to write this down because it's important. July 31st, we are doing our First Step Sunday night. That's one of the few nights that we reserve annually to focus on both discipleship and on community. Those are two of our core values, things that we prize highly and that we really want to highlight. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the, the discipleship part, encouraging people to take that next step, that first step, if they haven't taken one already, of Christian faith, uh, stepping out to say, yes, Jesus, I trust you, I will walk with you, I will be with you, I will demonstrate it publicly. And then community, by doing it together. All of our campuses will come together that night. It will be a fabulous time at Doug Russell Pool. We will have a, a party to follow and celebrate that God has put us together as one body in Christ. Let us close this time with a moment of prayer, shall we? Oh, Jesus, we praise you tonight for the opportunity that you've given us to be together. Thank you for your word and revelation. Even if we don't understand all of it, we get enough to know that you win in the end, and so do we. My prayer tonight, Jesus, is that you would remind us of that in the parts that we may not have unity on. You don't call us to uniformity, and for that I'm grateful. You simply call us to oneness. So I pray, Father, for that very thing. Help us now, Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time of business to be led by your Spirit and to use your resources well. 
We're grateful, Jesus, for your love for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.